All right. Hey, go ahead. If you have your Bibles, grab them and turn to Mark 11. Mark 11 is the chapter, you heard me correctly, the chapter that we're going to be going through uh, this morning. And while you're getting there, let me, let me pray because I, I can't preach and you aren't able to listen without the help of the Spirit. So let's do that. Holy Spirit, we pray now that you would humble our minds and hearts to receive the good news of your word that is the power to transform us more deeply into the image of Christ so that our love and affection for him might increase even now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. My name is Ashley. Please follow along as I read from Mark 11. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing, untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you curse has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive your you your trespasses." And they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, 
If we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Ash. You go take a rest on one of those couches out there in the back. Believe it or not, there are still five chapters left in Mark. And so what we're seeing now, as Ash just read, is we're seeing Jesus has now begun his final week, also called Passion Week, leading up to the cross, which will actually take us uh, to the end of the book in Mark as we finish it at the end of September. And what we just read, and what Ash just read to us in chapter 11, is really two very different insights into the character of Jesus, interesting insights into his character, which is one of our aims as we've been studying his life and ministry uh, through this gospel. The church needs to know the Jesus who walks with them. That's the aim as we're going through the gospel mark. And here, we're faced with some really significant and even difficult contrasts, actually, concerning the behavior of Jesus as he deals pretty decisively with matters of faith and unbelief. And, and really, in many ways, our lives can really be distilled down to that, right? They can be distilled down to matters of faith and unbelief. In other words, the life stage that you find yourself in this morning and the, the struggles that you may be battling through and the, the nagging sins that are weakening your faith and maybe the relationships that remain in various stages of brokenness. I, I think I just described everyone in the room, including myself, how they are dealt with are all matters of faith and unbelief. And so my prayer this morning is that the Holy Spirit will just graciously lead us through some honest self-evaluation as we consider this sobering truth, and it's that faith in Jesus bears fruit like Jesus that is grounded in prayer to Jesus. All right, let me, let me read my Dr. Seuss motif back to you really quickly here. Faith in Jesus bears fruit like Jesus that is grounded in prayer to Jesus. Right? More than ever, we have got to be a church that is not easily fooled by appearances. Right? We have to be discerning. And what Mark Levin does is it clarifies to us how Jesus exposes those who claim faith but could not claim any fruit from their faith. And, and again, no, no more was this brought home to me than uh, this last week when I was in California visiting a number of friends and, and family members. And so during the five or six days that, that I spent out there, I, I found myself sort of jockeying between two incredibly contrasting cultures and, and environments while I was out there. One area that I was in for a few days consisted of just an enormous amount of, of wealth and prosperity, just an overabundance of wealth and, and money and material possessions that honestly was just, was just dizzying, as well as being almost somewhat depressing uh, to, to my mind. And of course, the, the other area that I went to uh, uh, was, was actually the polar opposite. It was, uh, it was probably a more impoverished area. It was actually one of these areas that was looked down upon by the wealthy area that I'd spent a few days in. And yet, as I spent time in this more impoverished, looked down upon, less than area, th these, were, these were people who had an overabundance of humility and joy and godly hospitality to share with me. And again, it all boiled down to the difference between faith and unbelief. One people grounded their faith 
in the faithfulness of Jesus. The other had replaced Jesus as the object of their hope and were wallowing in unbelief. And I could feel that tangibly because faith in Jesus bears fruit like Jesus. So what we're gonna do right now is we're going to look at how Jesus just sort of confounds those who find themselves in the tension between the two. And we're gonna hopefully have a time of self-reflection, self-evaluation, and see where we find ourselves sitting at in that tension this morning. So if you look down at verse one, we see that Jesus now, uh, the, the last week of his life before he ends up on the cross, he enters Jerusalem as the coming king. And by doing that, he was actually fulfilling a prophecy from Zechariah 9, verse 9, that said this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous, and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So Jesus was actually, as he was doing what we call this triumphal entry into Jerusalem, making his, uh, making his identity finally known to all the people, um, we see him fulfilling this prophetic verse from the book of Zechariah in the Old Testament. Now, traditionally, what we're seeing here is that a king would enter the city on an unridden horse. That was kind of, kind of a traditional procession of a king coming in to the new city. But here we see something a little bit different with Jesus being king. He, he chooses an unridden colt or a donkey who, of course, he sends his disciples to borrow from a nearby village. And the crowds respond to Jesus by, by throwing their cloaks and their branches to celebrate their conquering king. They're shouting, Hosanna in the highest, which means save us, O Lord. But here's what's interesting. Jesus has a different kind of saving in mind. He would save his people not through what they expected. He would not save his people through the conquest of Rome, but by conquering death on a Roman cross. It was a lot different than what the people were expecting from Jesus. Born in a stable to save the world, he now comes on a donkey to die for the world he's saving. And that's not going to add up and it's not going to make sense, even in our own hearts, as we consider the kind of Jesus that we may have misappropriated in our minds and in our hearts from our church uh, traditions. But this is the Jesus of Scripture, a humble king coming in on a donkey to save us from our death by dying. Jesus has a different job description about what it means to be king. The people, and we've talked about this throughout Mark, haven't we? If the people want a political leader. They're jacked up about getting a political leader to relieve them from the oppression of Rome. They want Jesus just to roll into the White House, right? They want him to just kick his feet up in the Oval Office and start booking flights on Air Force One. Like, that's what they're looking for from Jesus as he rolls in. But the first stop Jesus makes, as we just heard from Ash, the first stop Jesus makes after ending Jerusalem on a donkey is the temple there in verse 11. If you look back at verse 11, where he goes ahead and he observes what's going on. He observes what kind of malpractices that may have been taking place in his father's house that he once taught in when he was 12 years old. And then what happens is he prepares an object lesson for his disciples the following day when he, of all things, curses a fig tree. 
And again, as we've been reading through the life of Jesus, I mean, this just kind of comes out at us and it feels a bit sharp. Why does Jesus curse a leafy fig tree for not producing, even though it says very clearly that it was not the season for figs, right? I mean, at first we might just think, you know, poor fig tree, right? Like Jesus, there's probably an Aldi's around the corner if you're hungry for fruit, right? I mean, why do you gotta just wipe out the, the poor, innocent, leafy fig tree? And as silly as that is, that kind of mindset, how I just laid out that ridiculousness, in some ways it's how we think about some of the things that Jesus does that doesn't add up and doesn't line up with our way, our human way of thinking. But this is what we know about Jesus, who by the way is God. We know that Jesus doesn't act out of compulsion like we do. He wasn't reacting like we do, right? Like when we pull up to the drive-through late at night and realize we're five minutes too late and think all the world's against us because we're hungry, right? He was instead providing a symbolic act here of judgment against Jerusalem for the fruit of their unbelief. He wanted his disciples to see this and to know this and to understand this. It was a symbolic act of judgment against the religious leaders who had a form of righteousness. They had leaves, they were leafy, they looked good, but they had no fruit of righteousness. When you got up close, when you observed them, when you saw the way they lived out their life, there was no righteousness, there was no fruit. So Jesus provides this really frightening illustration of the kind of fate that awaits those who, as it says in Mark 7, verse 6, we looked at weeks ago, those who honor him with their lips but have hearts that are far from him. Some of us would, de uh, would, would define that as hypocrisy. And by hypocrisy, what we mean is those who say they do one thing but actually do another. You know, just because we are sinners saved by grace and just because we sin, that doesn't necessarily mean we're hypocrites. I'm telling you right now, I have a week of sin ahead of me. I'm going to fall into some sin because I'm not perfect, because I sin every day. And by God's grace, I'm sinning less, and I'm feeling more conviction about my sin. But hypocrisy is coming out and presenting an image and a mask and an outer, an outerness of yourself that doesn't reflect the innerness of what's going on. So Jesus provides a frightening illustration and what he does to the fig tree, it's kind of a preview actually for something even more drastic that he does as we continue on for what's about to go down in the temple as you look down at verse 15 through 19. I remember my friend recently told me when he and his wife came back from vacation, their adult son had left their house in like shambles, right? It's weird because they were, they were just like super unhappy about that, I didn't understand why. But um, that's, what, uh, that's what this kind of reminds me of in verse 15 when we see Jesus entering the temple. And the conclusion he had come to, which was right, was that it had ceased to be the house of worship that it was intended to be. Some of you remember before we restored the warehouse here and before we had all these walls in and we, we just had, you know, turned it into the lap of luxury that you guys all enjoy uh, right now, um, Man, it was being used as an auction. Let's let that continue to humble us 
as we continue our time worshiping in a warehouse, right? But we were, before we restored it, it was being used as an auction. Again, uh, nothing wrong with auctions. I, I actually like auctions. Um, but there'd be something wrong if we had an auction going on right now during our worship, right? That's what was going on here. Um, and, and what Jesus is, is what, what, the, what the text is describing for us is that there was an outer court in the temple that was set aside, actually, for Gentiles to come in and worship. But what happened was the chief priest had allowed that area to instead be used for commerce, to be used for selling animals for sacrifice, which meant then that the Gentiles now weren't able to come in and have their designated area to worship as they should. And so, man, when we look down at Jesus' reaction here, I mean, it's a little sober. It's a little scary the way Jesus reacted. Remember a day earlier, he's sitting on a donkey. He's riding gently into Jerusalem. The people are receiving him. The people are celebrating him. The people are worshiping him as the coming king. And now he's just having it out on the temple. He's cleansing the temple. He's getting physically violent in the temple. But honestly, can, can we be a little honest here? Jesus driving out vendors and overturning tables is restraint at its absolute finest. Let's be honest. It's like a world heavyweight champion knocking over a domino, right? It's like a tornado blowing through town and causing a, a light breeze. When we think of who Jesus was, and what happens is he quotes from Isaiah 56 in verse 17. He says, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations so that all the nations included the Gentiles that were now being prevented to come in and worship because of the commerce that was taking place, because of the greed that had captivated the hearts of the chief priests who were now trying to make money from the selling of animals to line their pockets. And he says, you have made my house a den of robbers. You have made it a corrupt system of obtaining money for the temple tax and the offering required. Jesus was clearly not amused by what was going down. So, little recap, Jesus, the same Jesus who a day earlier was riding a donkey into Jerusalem, has now cursed a fig tree and cleansed the temple by driving out vendors and overturning money changers' tables. And you have to ask the question, what does this tell us about Jesus? What does this tell us about his character? It says that although he comes to some as a humble, sacrificial king, he also came to judge unfaithfulness and unbelief. That's the same Jesus. That's all contained in the heart of the same Jesus. And then we get to verse 20, we see the fig tree that Jesus cursed has now withered down to its roots. And Peter is like, Jesus, look, the fig tree, it's withered down to its roots. Like, look, that tree that you cursed, it's amazing. It's done, it's gone. It'll never produce fruit again. And then Jesus responds in verse 22 by saying, have faith in God. Probably not the follow-up any of them were expecting when they made mention of the cursing of the fig tree from the day before. But what we learn from this, 
What we learn from Jesus' response is that the only way to avoid the consequences of faithlessness is by faithfulness, which will then be evidenced by fruitfulness. That's what Jesus is trying to drive home here for us in this passage. Of course, if we're not careful, as we look down at this passage and we just do a quick reading through it, um, it can be used to turn Jesus into sort of our resident genie, right? But it stands to reason that Jesus is not saying here what so many prosperity preachers have taught, which is that God will grant every request we make if we just believe hard enough. Have you guys ever watched some television shows with dudes up there in the really bad white suits and hair that kind of like to proliferate this kind of nonsense? That's kind of what's going, that's what's going on right here is they look down at this passage and they just grab it and they use it out of context to suit their own desires. Surely though, surely that kind of reading into this would be in conflict with Jesus' own experience on the night before his death when the father doesn't grant Jesus even his request to say, if you're able, can you remove this cup? If there's another way If there's another way for salvation to be attained, can you do it some other way? God says no. God says no. Which again was a request and a prayer made by the most faithful person that has ever walked this earth. So surely that is not what this verse is talking about. That would be taking it grossly Out of context, what this passage actually means is that the prayers God hears and answers are ones offered in faith with a spirit of forgiveness and humility that grounds us in prayer. It's about believing that God has the ability to do far above what we ask or think and will grant us everything we ask, hold on, in accordance with what he has willed for us. Does that mean that every answer we get from God is the yes that we want? I mean, I feel like I want you guys to like reply to that. Does that mean every answer is a yes from God to us? No, you're correct. It means this though. It means God answers every prayer with the yes that he wants, which may be a no for us. And many times it's a Wait and trust and have faith that I am working in ways that you can't know and that you can't comprehend. And I'm going to give you what you need that is going to produce in your life a joy that is going to draw you deeper into the affections of Jesus, which in turn gives me ultimate glory. That's what's going on right there. So we want to be really careful when we read verses like this because God wants to give us everything that is going to draw us deeper into the image and love of his son that he sent on a donkey to die so that we might know him, so that we might have peace with him. That's the big idea when we read verses like Jesus giving us what we ask when we pray. Well, the question we have to ask is what are we asking for? What are we asking for? So then as we get to verse 27 here at the end, Jesus ends up back at the temple. Back at the temple facing 
his opponents. This time, instead of the Pharisees, it's the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. And you have to picture the scene a little bit now. There's no more selling. He cleaned out, right? He cleaned out the temple. There's no more selling. There's no more money changers. All the vendors have cleared out. The chief priests now aren't making a profit. They are furious, right? So they ask Jesus in verse 28, they say, by what authority are you doing all this? I mean, they come to him and they're like, what? Like, who do you think you are doing this, chasing these people out? And of course, Jesus answers their question with a question in, in verse 30. When he says this, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. Jesus creates a scenario to expose their motives and their lack of belief. And what happens is they, they realize the predicament that this question puts them in as we read verse 31. And they discussed it with one another saying, if we say from heaven, you know, they're delegating now, right? They're, 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 in a, they're in a circle, they're saying, okay, this is a real pickle, fellas. They say, if we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, they were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. And Jesus said to them, well, okay, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Really strange response from Jesus saying, you know, I'm not even engaging with you. Like, I'm not even answering your question. Now, of course, as we sort of unpack this, we see that he very clearly answered the question by not answering the question. And what he was doing was he was calling them out of their unbelief. But they don't answer the question because of their fear. But by not taking their bait, Jesus demonstrates to their unbelieving hearts that his authority from God was the same as it was from John the Baptist. Now, when I look at this, and I, and I try to apply this a little bit to my own heart, um, I realize that it's so easy to judge these brothers. It's so easy to judge the enemies of Jesus, isn't it? It's so easy to be appalled by their profound lack of belief in his authority while doing the same thing in much more sanitized ways for us questioning the authority of Jesus, thinking that, no, 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 I hear what you're saying, but I think what I have to say and what I have to believe and the way that I'm going to live out the authority that I want to retain in my own life is going to lead me to the better life that I'm convinced I have by ignoring you. So we're not that different. We're not that different. We struggle with this. I struggle with this. I struggle with the authority of Jesus. I'm never going to stand here and go, no, Jesus wasn't God. But do I believe him? Do I believe that everything he has for me, for life and for godliness, it's contained in his word? Do I pick and choose? Am I convenient with God's word? Yes. Yeah, I am. I'm convenient with it. So then how do we evaluate? How do we evaluate matters of faith and unbelief in our own lives as we read through this? It's a dark chapter, isn't it? I mean, the last three quarters of this chapter is like dark. 
I mean, it's dark. It's like Stranger Things season two, you know? Like, it's dark, right? Like, we don't know what's happening here. Like, Jesus is leading someplace dark. And he's doing some very interesting things as he leads us to the darkest moment in human history, which was his death on the cross. But how do we evaluate matters of faith and unbelief in our own lives? Because it's there. Because it's present. Here's three things. First one is this, and I'm going to I'm gonna discuss these in the form of a question, each of them. The first one is this, is Jesus your king? Is Jesus your king? How do you receive Jesus into your life, into your town, into your job, into your school, into your family, into your church? Is he here to fulfill our desires or to fill us with the desire to be faithful to him and see the fruit of sanctification produced in us by the cleansing power of the gospel. Is that more of what it is? I think it's the latter. See, if you receive Jesus in king, then your entire life, by virtue of that submission, must become subject to his desires. Because you're saying, Jesus, you know better forever about what needs to happen in my life. And this is what we know about Jesus. We know that he's not an evil dictator king. He's not an ego-driven, power-hungry warlord. Jesus is lowly in heart. He's meek. He's mild. His love is proven. His generosity is unparalleled because everything you've ever had and everything you have has come from his hand. Our submission to his kingly rule over every part of our lives is the only way for the darkness of unbelief to stop ruling over us. How do we do that? How do we submit? Well, he said it. We start with prayer. We become a people who prays. We become a people who grounds their lives in the truth of prayer and in the faith of prayer. There is something in your life right now, today, that is not going as planned. There's, I can give you a list of the things in my life that are not going as planned. But what does that tell us about the way God unfolds plans? Because we're not, we're not living arbitrary lives. We don't have some plan that's unfolding that God's kind of like, yeah, I don't know, I'm gonna get to that soon. Give me a minute. So if God's unfolding the plans in our lives, what does it tell us when we have things that aren't going as planned? Maybe that's the question that you have not been asking. When your plans fail, it means that God is unfolding an alternate plan for your life that makes you less about your life. That's what's happening. That's the authority of God. That's the sovereign, kingly control he has over all things, whether you or me or anybody understands it or not. See, our level of understanding of what God does has nothing to do with what God does. But we forget that and we think he owes us rationality. He does not. 
Is Jesus your king? Two, what is the state of your worship? What is the state of your worship? Have you ever left something out in the sun and it becomes warped and unusable? Again, it's just been sitting out in the sun. It's just sitting out in nature. But have you ever left something out that's just become twisted? It becomes unusual, unusable? Because really, at the end of the day, it was neglected by you? Has your worship become warped? Let me go a little bit deeper into that. Have you relegated your worship of God to this, to a Sunday gathering at 10 a.m. or 5 p.m.? What does your worship look like the rest of your life? What does your worship look like when no one here is around? What does your worship look like late at night when it's just you, the TV, and your computer? What does your worship look like when you're with the ladies and all your unruly kids on a play date? What does your worship look like with your difficult spouse? What does your worship look like at school when you're around other students who are not lovers of God? What does your worship look like around your coworkers on the golf course, in your garage, driving behind the guy going 30 miles per hour on 250? <laughs> what state is your worship in during those times? Because when you look down at Mark 11, you see how Jesus reacts when he observes how corrupted the temple had become. Let's not forget what Paul reminded the Corinthian church of when he said, do you not know that your body is a temple? A temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. And then he goes on to say, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So we look down and we see Jesus cleansing the temple, and we're like looking around going, yeah, man, I don't think he's going to come in here and do anything. Yeah, he's going to come in here and go directly into your hearts and do a thing. That's what's happening. What might God need, listen, to drive out of your life that has corrupted your worship? I mean, this seems like a real, very un-Jesus-like move, man. Overturning tables, driving people out. But you know what happened? You know what happened when he did that? Gentiles were able to pray and worship in the outer court again. I mean, it was a serious throwdown of grace. And it might be time for God to do some cleansing in you so that he might be glorified by you once again. Three, do you have a fruit-producing faith? Do you have a fruit-producing faith? It's so interesting how Jesus responds after Peter notices the fig tree had withered to its roots. He says, have faith in God. I mean, I don't know what those disciples are like, but I'm thinking like, are you gonna, you gonna, like, are you gonna tell us how you did that first before you start talking about faith in God? He says, have faith in God. What this tells us is that there's a direct correlation between faithfulness and fruitfulness and that it's rooted in prayer. A faithful person is a praying person. And a praying person will be a fruitful person because their heart will be constantly realigned with God's will. That's what happens when we pray. That's what happens when we devote ourselves 
to pleading before God. The fruit of faithfulness is a person who prays. A person who believes God will act. A person who forgives others the way the Father has forgiven them. This is a fruit producing faith. Because in the end, ain't none of y'all are going to hear God say, well done, good and faithful servant, because you came to church with an ESV Bible. Because you attended a community group because you served in a ministry, because you raised your hands that one Sunday and sang more loudly, or because you put money in the giving box. He's going to say good and faithful servant because you repented and believed in Jesus, his good and faithful son. And the byproduct of that act of faith will be good and faithful fruit that will find its constant nourishment and grounding in prayer. So the issue for Jesus was a city who'd abandoned prayer. And the result was an unfruitful, unfaithful life for the people that had once served under God as their king. The religious leaders questioned the authority of Jesus because they turned their house of prayer into a house of profit. The only answer for how to have a fruit-producing faith is to have a faithful prayer life, which is a lifestyle where we constantly go before God. And here's what's amazing. We have the ear of God. Have you ever thought of prayer like that? When you go before the Lord and you pray to him, in that moment, you have God's ear. That just sounds insane to me. The one who created ears, you have his ear. He is listening to you. James 5.16 says the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. 1 Peter 3.12 tells us, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. What qualifies a person as righteous then? Faith in Christ, who became the righteousness we need on the cross, and the fruit of that righteousness is faithful prayer. That's what's being driven to us this morning. Some of you, some of you, live in a perpetual state of fear and foreboding. And when I ask, when I sit down with you, and when I ask you if you pray, you say, yeah, I need to work on that. Like it's a project in your garage that's been lingering too long and you need to finish it up. Do you see what Jesus is, is committing to us here? Do you see what he's pointing out? Do you see what he's revealing to us here in terms of our faith and our fruit and our lack thereof? Because our lives can be boiled down to matters of faith and unbelief. We need to know what a faithful and a fruitful life looks like. And it's deeply and directly related to people 
who have been changed by God to be people who communicate with him. That's the difference with us. That's the difference with those of you who have been changed by the gospel, is that now you have an advocate. Now you have someone to bring all of your cares before. And remember, this, this picture that we see of Jesus who goes into the temple, who curses the fig trees, who calls out the hip, hypocritical religious leaders. Remember the beginning of the chapter, because I don't want to end on that, even though that is 100% who Jesus is. I want to remember the beginning of the chapter for us as we finish. I want to remember Jesus, the humble king on a donkey, going to his death. Because that's the portrait of grace that we see all through scripture. We see Jesus going to the cross so that we wouldn't have to die in our unbelief, so that we could have a fruit-producing faith. Because you know what? Jesus comes. Jesus has come. And he comes with judgment for some, but he comes in triumph for others. He comes with triumph for others. 2 Corinthians 2, 14 through 16 says, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death, to the other, a fragrance from life to life. So yes, our faith is weak. We find ourselves in various stages of weakness and struggle. That's always going to be the case. But it's the faithfulness of Jesus and our submitting to him as a humble and gracious king whereby he comes and he works through our prayers to produce in us a fruitful life that brings us joy, that gives him glory and counts us as the sons and daughters of God. Amen? Let's pray. God, we're humbled when we read about the character and the behavior of Jesus. And we know that he was God in the flesh and that everything he did Every reaction he had, every word he said was perfect and true. And so, Lord, help us to have understanding hearts about the seriousness that Jesus had and the actions he took with those who had a hypocritical faith. For those who did not receive his words as the final authority, but sought to live out their own lives to be the master of their own destinies and who chose instead to become mired in their own unbelief. Lord, guard us against that. Guard us against people that may know you, but also people that don't know ourselves very well and how easily we are swayed into hopelessness, into not believing your words, into taking measures into our own hands in not coming before you in the humility of prayer and the grace and the mercy that comes as we 
commit ourselves before you. So Lord, change that about us. Let us be a church that is not lazy, that is not self-assured, that doesn't draw on its own talents, that doesn't back and fall into its own confidence, but comes to you like the way you came into Jerusalem. As somebody who was humble, as somebody who rode in on a donkey. Lord, let us, let us be transformed with the heart of Jesus so that we can have lives that produce fruit like Jesus and we can have a faith that is reflective of the love and grace that you've shown us in Christ. Thank you for the good news of this passage, that we don't have to be lost, that if we fall in line right now with the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, if we are somebody who has not committed our lives to you, that has not submitted ourselves in repentance, who has not believed the gospel, Lord, I pray that you would break those hearts right now, that they would come to you and say, Lord, I just want to know you. I just want you to break me. I just want you to enter my life. I just want you to give me the faith I need to believe you and to have a life that slowly begins the process of producing fruit. Lord, draw people into you this morning so that we can all be changed from one degree of glory to another, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.